just discussing what the title for this podcast might be, and you said, I think we should call it Radical Listening. So I like that. I like that phrase. But I want to know what that meant to you. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> radical listening. So what? It, so sometimes I think when I talk to people about what we do and what our work is, and you know, we teach storytelling and listening. And um, this might be an assumption of mine. Uh, and sometimes I feel that I see in people's faces that, oh, listening, like, number one, well, you know, what's that? How do you teach listening? Then we all do that all the time. We're all listening all the time. Mm. And, oh, I know about that. That's about active listening. I know what active listening looks like, and I did a course on that, and I can do it. Um, And I think that sometimes it feels like the idea of really becoming um, an athletic listener, which is what we talk about, feels like that's a a bit uh, namby-pamby. You know, it's a bit of a soft skill. It's a bit, it's a... It's a bit sort of, well, that's nice to have, but is that, how important is that really to be a good listener? You know, because I'm not, um, you know, I might work with you on a team. So it's not my job to be your counsellor or your therapist or your whatever. And that's, and so really listening seems to have all those kind of connotations. And I am observing just living on this planet at this moment in time where there is enormous change that's been generated by the pandemic which has given people an opportunity to listen and reflect and notice how the world is and then on top of that and I'm and I'm kind of not surprised that this is all happening at the same time too there is this change in our relationship to black lives matter movement you know the george floyd's his murder has been a catalyst but actually underneath that is i think and you know ben okri said this brilliantly on the radio that because we've all been in this um period of reflection and of quietness and some of us doing much less that actually our whole relationship to ourselves and the concept of freedom and what that means is to the fore so you know then when we see that video of what happened to George Floyd it's it lands on all of us in a very different way the question that was put to him was well why why this time? Why, mm. why has this generated this change? And, and it feels like this rate of change um, is, is picking up speed. It's getting faster mm. and faster and having loads of ramifications. You know, I'm thinking this morning about listening to the radio and comedians talking about mm. justi- white comedians justifying the way that they have depicted black people in the past so so you know this is mm. you know great this is not going away this this change is happening so radical listening so so to come back to that was a question that you asked me what i think radical listening is listening is not a soft skill or if it's a soft skill it has very hard tangible 
outcomes. And what I mean by listening is taking responsibility for the filters that one might, the assumptions that one might listen through, acknowledging that, that, that they exist and continuing to listen, clear those obstacles and keep listening. And I'm talking really about listening to oneself as well as listening to other people. And that to me is a radical act. There. Hmm. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> There's a lot in there. And I've been trying to take kind of mental notes of all the little things that it's been sparking for me. I mean, the, the first one is, yes, the choice of the word radical does um, bring it into the politi political sphere. Um, because it's radical in that, it, that it's dynamic. You talked about athletic listening, that it's not a soft, nice to have. It's an essential focused activity um, that, is, that is paramount for our ability to um, be with other people, to connect with other people. Um, so you used athletic, but radical also brings it into this moment in time where the personal and the political is really being so clearly brought into focus by events in the world, by the pandemic, and as, as the example you gave of uh, what happened to George Floyd. Um, it's interesting, um, so many things were coming up for me there. You, you talked about that, um, the soft skill in inverted commas of being a good listener in an organisation with somebody you work with and I don't have to be their counsellor, which to me just kind of flagged that there's a fear of really open listening mm. of other people. I'm scared about what you might reveal or what you might bring up or what I might have to address in you, which I don't normally have to address. Um, that I don't want to be your counsellor. And I think so much is changing in this, in this new world of seeing into each other's lives through Zoom. And we've talked about this before on podcasts, how we literally have a window into somebody else's life outside the office because the office comes into their home. So it comes into literally their living space and the things that are in their living space and the people that are in their living space. And so um, that idea of seeing more of people um, has become, seeing into people's lives has become um, much more evident in this time. So um, that was something that came up as you were speaking. Can, can I just hop in? Because what, um, when you said that, you know, this idea about there being a fear of what somebody might reveal, and I think it kind of even goes beyond that. I think, yes, that's there, because when we really listen and we are really open to listen to somebody, then, yeah, we absolutely do not know what they're going to say. We can't know. When we're listening openly, we acknowledge... Yeah. I do not know the way that this dialogue is going to go. I don't know, um, I don't know what you're going to say. I don't know what you're going to reveal. And I don't know what I'm going to reveal. Because if I really listen and I really tune in to you, 
um, you know, we work with this idea of a reciprocal relationship between listening and telling. Mm. Listening creates a particular space. So um, the person who is speaking will reveal something and that will reveal something in in the listener. Well, so there I is that reciprocal relationship. And what that identifies is that so often we don't listen like that. We listen in order to. We listen, we give some space, and we listen in order that we can fix something. So we're listening for how we can fix it or how we can take care of it yeah. or how we can disagree with it or how we can agree with it. But that, that listening in order to yeah. is so... It's very wired into the processing of the brain, of course, because we are everything we all the information we gather from our senses all the time. We're processing it and deciding about it, good or bad and what we have to how we have to deal with it. And that's not different in our listening, but it takes a very active focus to see if we can release that sense of listening in order to dot, mm -hmm. dot, dot, mm -hmm. to just create the space where you don't know what you're going to say, not what they're going to say. I think that's really interesting because, yes, we never quite know what somebody else is going to say. But to listen and not know what you're going to say next yeah. is where it becomes kind of exciting and interesting, I think. And a bit more scary. And, uh, yeah, and very scary, which is why, you know, very often when we work with people on their listening, what they report is, oh, well, if I'm in a meeting or uh, in any kind of uh, professional um, situation, I will start listening and then I get, you know, then I get the idea for the thing that I'm going to say mm, next. Mm. And then actually my listening stops because what I'm doing is working on what I'm going to say next rather than staying with mm. listening to the thing that I've just, uh, that I've just heard. Yeah. I mean, I noticed that even happening to me right now because you were talking about the thing that you were listening to and I had the thought, oh, and I can, I, I'm going to say something about how usually we listen just for the gap so that then we can say the thing that we wanted to say all along and that we stop listening. Mm. So We're doing it now because so we're having a conversation. <laughs> we're having a conversation and it's really hard <clears throat> to do. Yeah, and also in this conversation, we before we turned the recorder on, we knew that we were going to talk about radical listening mm. and we thought a little bit about what we thought that conversation might be about. And I don't know about you, I can only, oh, I can only speak for me, that then I felt a, um, a slight apprehension and I think it's an apprehension that I always feel before we record something because, precisely because... I've, I'm really aiming to just step into the unknown when we record these things, because I don't want I don't want it to sound like or or be something that feels like oh that's a rehearsed mm. thing or mm. that's a you know that's a a lesson or that's a whatever it is. Mm. What I really enjoy about doing it is that it it's a real conversation between you and me, but we're capturing it. Yes. And, yes. and it's and it's risky to step into that space because it can go anywhere. Yes, I mean I think I think this time, this time. <laughs> it's interesting how much people refer to this time, and everybody knows what that means. 
um, or has a sense for themselves of what this time means. But people have asked us in the last few weeks, I would say, not, not even a month ago, but in the last few weeks, about um, whether it's time for people to start telling stories of now, of what's, of what's just happened to us all since the beginning of the year. And my instinct, I think our instinct, has been that it's not, that it's too early. That um, our ability to, we, we, always, we always talk about stories as being a, a, a fantastic space to explore and reflect and learn about our experience. And it feels very close at the moment. Um, and I personally don't feel that I'm in a space where I can really um, authentically learn something yet from what's happened to me because it, I feel it's still happening to me. So for me, it feels like there will be a time for stories. Um, and if we're telling stories now, perhaps they're not stories of this time, they're stories of other times, which transport us to other times and places. And we can learn from those experiences. But learning from this experience, I feel the stories can come later. But now it's about listening. Yeah. And I think yeah. that about the pandemic. And then I think that about the kind of emerging Black Lives Matter issue that's just risen right, importantly, to the top of everybody's agenda in the last two weeks. Um, and as a white person, and as a white man... And as a white man of a certain age, it's not my job to be saying anything, I feel. I feel that the best I can do is really stop and listen. And if we think of one of our, one of narrative's ground rules is we respond, we don't react. I think it's that way around. Mm. Um, but it's mm. about responding, which, um, which to me just feels... a like you you receive before you then um, come back with a response and reacting feels more um, knee-jerk and more immediate. So I feel I am listening um, to know what my response might be and listening to create a space for other people, for other people's voices. Yeah, which is the other part of... Uh, radical listening you know our narratives work started in advocacy and mm. um, and so what and we very often find ourselves working with marginalized groups of people of all mm. different kinds and, and our primary job in that is to create the space for somebody else to tell their story and that's where <clears throat> It's radical and athletic because listening can feel like it's the absence of something. Yeah. It's the absence of speaking. No, listening isn't the absence of speaking. Mm. Mm. Speaking can be the absence of listening, actually. But, but no, listening is not the absence of speaking. It's an act. Mm. And it's a conscious act that is generative, that creates something. And you, yes, you really sparked that for me, as you mentioned the narrative origin, working in another pandemic, working in the AIDS crisis, um, which is really kind of the origin of, of Murray Nossel, the founder's work, creating a space where nobody 
or very, very few people were creating spaces for the voices of HIV and AIDS sufferers mm. to speak their stories. And so it was radical to, to then to step back and say, this is your space. This is your space to tell your story as it is and we'll record it and we'll capture it. The, there's lots of um, uh, lots of kind of different meanings that I that I think I see in this just in this whole idea of listening, creating, the telling, and lots mm. of different. Uh, I want to say ramifications. I don't know if that's the the right word. Maybe it's the right word. Um, but just the idea, um, and I know that this gets said to to people who have been silenced or are are silent why didn't you speak up why didn't you say something uh, which puts the onus on that person to be the one to take the space and to speak their experience Mm. Um, and I think if if you have had a lifetime or a long time or lifetimes of not being listened to Mm. Why would you speak up? You know, why why would you speak up? And this, to me, kind of relates to the idea of, like, pulling down the statue. People had asked for right. the statue of Edward Colston in Bristol to be taken down for years, for yes. years and years and years. So they spoke up so it wasn't, in the constraints of how they were allowed to speak up. Yeah. And it wasn't that they didn't have a voice. They had a voice, and that voice was not listened to. Yeah. So ultimately... They exercise it in a different way, and the statue is taken down, which has kind of generated a whole different kind of listening and and attention be paid. Um, but I think in our work, where this comes, what you know, where this comes back to, it's not why didn't you speak up? Yes. It's why haven't we been listening? Why yes. are we not listening to what people have been saying for a long, long time? None of this is new. So, so it comes back again to that idea that of the two, of the two, speaking and listening, speaking is the only one which is active. You know, why didn't you speak? Because that's the active thing to do. But we've had this in organisations as well, where it's these people don't speak up, we need to empower them. And it's actually, why aren't you listening to them? Are you creating a a listening space where they feel they can speak up? Because really, what comes first? If you speak, they will listen, yes, but... If you listen, they will speak. Yeah. And and if, as we discover sometimes in organisations, if the culture within the organisation is such that there is fear around speaking up about something, oh, you know, somebody on my team spoke up about something and then they were passed over for promotion or they they lost their job ultimately or, or whatever or that might be. Nothing they won't listen to. Yeah, or nothing changed. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Nothing changed. Um, then how ca- how can you require people to speak mm. up? So mm. the listening, radical listening, creates the space for for what can be spoken, mm. for all the stories that there are to tell, and there are a multiplicity of stories. There are many many stories yes. that are that are not being heard that we have not created the space for. Uh, and I agree. And I agree. On, you know, on a personal level, um, 
I, you know, I feel like in in this moment, it's just for me not not to say anything. You know, sp- speaking, thinking about Black Lives Matter. My responsibility as a white woman is to say, I am here. I support this. I am an ally in everything that that means, um, and to and to listen and learn because this is giving me an opportunity to listen to myself in a different way to look mm. at my own biases to look at my own assumptions you know through throughout my lifetime as somebody born in the 60s and um this is an invaluable opportunity yes, yes. it's interesting you know the, the the you touched on the multiplicity of stories and what what's interesting in these ongoing conversations that you and I are having is that we regularly loop back to the, into the same things but life is moving on um the world is moving on and so we come back to them with a different focus or they're inflected in a different way because of what's happening out in in the world around us the multiplicity of stories we've talked about representation before now when you mention the multiplicity of stories i think about that statue of colston and i think about the one story that has been told about it on the plaque and and even just by its presence and how he's depicted there and they were just saying on the radio today, um, you know, it shouldn't sit in the bottom of the British, the, the Bristol Channel. It should be brought up and put somewhere mm. um, because it, there is an opportunity for it to be put um, in a context of another story. For that to be the story that was chosen to be told at the time that that statue was built, for whatever reason, because he was a benefactor, because he was powerful, whatever. Um, they chose to tell this story about him that depicted him like this and that had these words inscribed below it. And here's another story about who he was as well. So that we're not um, submerging any stories. His story of him being a benefactor and a powerful man is not submerged either. He's not um, He's not written out of history Um that there's a multiplicity of stories around Colston, who he was. So I think there's an opportunity to just allow us to see the multiplicity of stories, mm. to see that story that was told about him then in that moment of time. And now with other insights and other knowledge about who he was historically, here's another story of who and the people and the context that he lived in and the people that he interacted with and what he did or didn't do mm. well, to the, those people. The dominance and the hidden narrative. Exactly. You know, if a statue is raised to commemorate someone, to celebrate someone, then the dominant story that, that we have received about Edward Colston for however mm. many hundred years is that he was a benefactor. And that's why... You and know, magnanimous. And magnanimous and how, and how generous. And that is the dominant story. And there has been a hidden narrative, which is, has not been hidden for everyone, but it has been 
hidden willfully for some people who even know the other side of the story but yeah. choose to hold on to the grandeur of what that dominant narrative is and the hidden story um, deserves its place. And, but, and Must people, have its place. And for people that have just walked past that statue and numerous statues that we have around us in public spaces, um, we've just absorbed the meaning of those statues um, we we've we've just carried that meaning around us on a on a kind of subliminal deep level around the the power of uh, us as white imperial leaders mm. Um, mm. without even questioning it and it and so it comes back to um history which has the word story in it and and as people question and, you know, recoin it as her story, her story, you know, history, mostly written by men, mostly always written traditionally by the by the winners yeah, in whatever yeah, yeah. the battle was. And it just, yeah. uh, as people have said um, recently in the last week, you know, history... It, History is about, always relates to now. And um, history, like any story, deserves to be just reviewed continually in new contexts with, with um, new insight and new feelings about things because there's a multiplicity of stories. Mm. There's mm. not just one history. And, and, and just to come back to uh, the thing that you were saying about us not being ready to tell the story of now Um, and and how we can't tell the story of now because this this situation that we are in is is not ended yet it's it's ongoing and so we can't process we we can't fully process at all what's happened because precisely because it is ongoing. Um, But I listened to a psychologist on the radio talk about somebody who's doing a study into the dreams that people are are having at this this moment in time. And there's a lot of them. Yeah. Personally speaking. Yeah. And and how our dreams are, you know, uh, dreams are stories. Uh, Our dreams are our stories, are are the way that our unconscious talks to us and talks to us in symbols and images and stories and that's what our dreams are and this psychologist was saying that what is happening because this moment in time is unlike anything that has ever happened to us before in in any of our lifetimes so our dreams are particularly vivid and many people in their study are reporting that they are dreaming about things from their childhood people that they've lost relationships that they've lost as as our brains are doing this um uh, create trying to create a pattern between what is this time that i am in right now compared to the story of the rest of my life and the other stories that I have in my life. So, you know, I don't doubt that from this time we will have amazing artworks and they may not necessarily be about this time at all, but it's just given us a chance to process everything else. You know, of, of course, eventually there will be, you know, 
virus virus artworks. There will be COVID-19 art in all sorts of ways. But I think it will also be a spring springboard to other to us talking about other subjects and other things because mm. it's given us the space to examine that and process that. I think that's really interesting about dreams being the you know the way we process experience and I can only speak for myself in saying that I dream every single night it feels like I wake up and I have the end of a dream just there and so it feels like I'm really conscious of the the processing energy that my brain is is taking up during those sleep hours to understand all this and dreams and um and memories as well i find myself going back into previous experiences from my life and both those things i've wondered whether it's because there's a um an inability to envision the future at the moment mm. so there's a lot of processing of the present and a bit of revisiting the past and both those things are perhaps trying to understand the direction we're going in but like many people I um, I I think I feel like I don't know what the next 12 months will hold let alone the next five years mm. um, and that to me is about how we story our lives yeah and we're very used to um, unconsciously living out a story arc that we are on, however much we think or don't think about it. Um, our lives are made up of um, life moments that are turning points in our the grand story of our lives, of the arc of our lives. Um, and it feels like it, uh, I, I am unsure about what the next bit of the arc looks like. Mm. And my brain is working really hard as I sleep to help me with that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a whole other conversation probably it about um, having a vision of the future or mm. being, for, for us as, as a species, to be able to, you know, on an individual level and as, as, as a species on this planet, to be able to envision for ourselves uh, a, a better world is what feels like it's possible. And I also feel that in this moment, we're right in the middle of this thing. So how are we, how can, how can we do that? Um, yes. But I think we find our vision by being really present with what is, which comes back to this idea of, of radical listening and being, you know, requiring ourselves to be really honest about what we what we hear when we, mm. when we listen like that. Um, I have a question for you, just to sort of finish up this conversation, which is, how are you going to radically listen today? What does that mean for you? And I think we should finish with that question, because <laughs> um, I think that's just one for us all to be pondering. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>